The Four-Story Mistake, Chapter 5, Rockaby Rush. Up on the hill in the woods there was an oak. Of course there were a lot of oaks, dozens of them. There were birch trees, too, with bark like torn satin, and hickory trees, and elms, and pines, and big silvery beeches that looked as if they'd been poured into moulds. Thousands of trees there were, but this oak was special. Rush had been looking for the right tree for days now. It had to be tall, for one thing. It had to have widespread branches not too near the earth, and it had to be strong. Also, it had to grow on a hill. This was it. Once long ago Rush had built a tree house in a place where the Malandies used to spend their summers, and he had never forgotten it. It had been his own private domain, and nobody had been allowed to enter it without a special invitation extended by the architect. He remembered with pleasure the privacy and power he had felt in his tree house. He remembered the way it had creaked and swayed high among the branches, and how it bucked and leaped like a ship at sea whenever the wind was strong. It had been wonderful to lie on his back in that airy, gently rocking nest, and look up into the living, complicated structure of leaves and branches. Why not do it all over again? Why not? Father agreed. There's a lot of wood out in the stable, down in the furnace room, too, left over from crates. You ought to be able to find enough material. Be careful now, Rush, cautioned Cuffy. I don't want no broken collarbones. "'I know just what to do for a broken collarbone,' Mona said, with a glint in her eye. "'They're teaching our class first aid at school.' Rush had an uncomfortable suspicion that she would welcome his breaking a bone just for the pleasure of treating it. "'Rest assured that all my bones will be guarded as carefully as rare jewels from the Indies,' said Rush. "'I'm not going to have you fussing with my fractures, Mona, and putting my bones together upside down.' "'Not a chance, pal, not a chance.' "'Willie Sloper helped him with the house. "'There were a lot of crates, just as Father had said, "'and Rush and Willie made several trips up the hill "'carrying wood, saws, hammers, and nails. "'Randy and Oliver were allowed to accompany them, "'staggering under armfuls of planks. "'All Saturday and Sunday of the third weekend "'that the Melendies had been living in the four-story mistake,' The sound of hammer-beats came from the woods, and finally on Sunday evening the tree-house was finished. The whole family—Cuffy, Oliver, Isaac, everybody—went up the wooded hill to inspect it. It was an excellent tree-house. They all said so, even father. It was a square, broad platform, anchored to boughs twenty feet above the earth. There was a railing round it, and wires were bound from the corner-posts about the branches beneath. "'Yes, sir,' Willie Sloper said. "'Can't nothing much shake down that little roost without it's a hurricane. "'But I might need that ladder again some time. "'You better build the foot-pieces onto the trunk real soon.' "'Rush kept forgetting about building the foot-pieces. "'So many things were happening. "'Every day they rattled off to school in the motor. "'The Carthage people made quite a lot of fun of it. "'They called it the jalopy, or the aquarium, "'or the caboose that got left behind.' The Melendies didn't mind. They knew it was a funny-looking old thing, but they were fond of it, and it got them places without quite falling apart. They had all made friends, and school was beginning to be very interesting to them. Mona was at the head of practically everything in her class except sports and mathematics. "'I think I'm going to be president pretty soon, too,' she said modestly. 
Rush was the best of his class in mathematics and history. And if they had a music department, I'd be best in that, he admitted with candor. Randy excelled only in drawing, which they didn't have often, and poor Oliver wasn't at the head of anything at all in his class. He confessed it freely, thought for a minute, and brightened as he added, But me and Joseph Bryan way more than anybody else. Home was nice, too. The queer old house was comfortable and spacious. Even Randy had stopped being homesick. She had built a free st- whoops, she had built a feeding stand for birds on the roof outside the cupola. Each day she got up early, sprinkled breadcrumbs there, and millet seed, and watched them come. Sparrows, of course, a greedy starling, big savage blue jays, and all the rare shy ones, tanagers, and cardinals, and fox-brown thrushes. Mona had pinned up all her signed photographs of actors and actresses. She was also writing a play, and learning how to knit. Rush had found the right place for his piano, and spent hours practicing whenever he wasn't up in the treehouse. And Oliver, when he didn't sneak down to the cellar room, spent most of his time courting colds in the brook. Indian summer lasted a long time that year, so long into the autumn that the violet plants beside the brook believed that spring had come again and put out new blossoms. Each day the sun shone, the birds lingered, though the trees were turning. "'purely out of habit, and their rose and yellow and rust "'looked strange and beautiful above the brilliant green grass. "'It was a wonderful time, almost better than spring, really, "'because it was rarer. "'Each golden day was cherished to the full, "'for one had the feeling that each must be the last. "'Tomorrow would be winter. "'The Melendies went about in shorts and bare feet, "'breathing the air luxuriously and hating to go indoors.' Hickory trees abounded on the old on the whoops, hickory trees abounded on the place, and black walnuts and butternuts. The old orchard had a russet tree whose apples tasted sweeter and sharper and better than any apples the children had ever eaten. When they were at home, they were always biting and nibbling, breaking nuts with big stones, or wandering through the high, dry grass of the orchard, looking for windfalls. "'I loved the old house,' Randy said sadly, "'but I'm afraid I'm going to love this one even better.' One day, Rush came home early from school. The man from Freebush's grocery store brought him home with the delivery. Two pounds of bacon, a roast of beef, a bushel of potatoes, six cans of peaches, and Rush arrived together at eleven-thirty in the morning. "'Why, what's the matter?' inquired Cuffy, wiping her hands on her apron. "'Why are you home so early? Been bad?' "'No, Cuffy,' Rush said. "'But Miss Holzinger thinks I've got a temperature. My throat's sore.' "'Throat's sore!' exclaimed Cuffy. "'Why didn't you say so this morning? You come right in and go to bed. I'll give you some aspirin and a gargle.' Rush followed her unhappily into the house. It was a lovely day, and he hated to go to bed.' "'Except for when I swallow, I feel perfectly okay,' he thought. After a delicate invalid lunch, a long nap, and a half-hour's perusal of his algebra book, Rush felt well and in need of entertainment. He went out on the landing and called for Cuffy. There was no answer. She had gone to Carthage in the motor with Willie Sloper. Father was in New York, Rush knew. Everybody else was at school. Even Isaac failed to respond to his whistle— 
Cuffy must have taken him to Carthage with her. Disconsolate, <laughs> Disconsolately, Rush went back to bed. Once more he studied his algebra book unhappily. He looked at his other books in their cases, but he had read them all at least twice. He lay back on his pillow, but it felt full of lumps, and he wasn't sleepy. "'Darn it! I'm bored,' Rush said crossly to his room. The cool white walls stared back at him indifferently. He rolled over and gazed gloomily out his window at the black boughs of the Norway spruce. Just about now the guys in his class would be out on the field for football practice. He hated like the dickens to miss it. The dark branches lifted a little and swayed against the window. Rush sat up. No one's here to tell me not to. Why don't I try it? He got out of bed, put on his sweater, a bathrobe, and a pair of felt slippers, and opened the window. Just as he had one leg over the sill, a thought occurred to him. He went back to his bed and buried a pillow under the blankets in a lifelike mound. Just in case, said Rush prudently. He returned to the window, straddled the sill, and reached for the nearest spruce branch. It was quite easy. Feeling clever and adventurous, he reached back and closed his window. Then he continued his investigation of the tree. He had been meaning to do it for weeks. There were a great many scratchy needles and inconvenient twigs, but the boughs were not too far apart. Bleeding slightly from several scratches, with a tear in his bathrobe, and the greater portion of an abandoned bird's nest draped about his head and shoulders, Rush finally reached the bottom. First he brushed and shook himself, and got rid of the pieces of bird's nest which had gone down his neck, and felt exactly as if he were wearing a shirt made of shredded wheat. Then he ambled light-heartedly, and a little light-headedly too, owing to his temperature, across the lawn. It was delightful to know that everybody was away. The place was his and his alone. He sang to himself as he floated across the grass and up into the woods. He sang a good, loud sea-song that he was fond of. But, oh, it was a cruel sight, and grieved us full sore. Sail high, sail low, and so sailed we, to see them all a-drowning as they tried to swim to shore, sailing down along the coast of high Barbary. He scrambled up Willie Sloper's ladder, hurdled the railing of the treehouse, and sat down on the floor with his back pressed against the rough substantial trunk of the oak. It was good to rest after his recent exertion. He sat very still listening to the minute, distant ringing of the fever in his ears. Beyond it there were other sounds, the sounds of a warm fall day. Leaves dropped with a whisper to the earth, and acorns plopped like heavy drops of rain. A woodpecker rapped at the trunk of the tree above Rush's head. Another pecked nearby, and another, and another, and another. The woods were full of a ghostly, hollow knocking, as though dozens of brittle knuckles beat upon closed doors. He lay down flat on his back and looked up into the purpling roof of leaves. How high it was, and beyond it how tremendous was the sky! Rush felt as though he were lying on the floor of the ocean, deep, deep down. Fathomless currents stirred the leaves and rocked his cradle. By and by he was asleep. At half-past four everybody came home in the motor. 
Randa, Mo <laughs> Randy, Mona, and Oliver played prisoner's base on the lawn. Cuffy peeked into Russia's room, thought he was sleeping, and went down to the kitchen to get supper. Willie came with her to peel the potatoes and have a good talk. At five-thirty a procession of slate-blue clouds rose out of the west and hid the setting sun. They were thick, huge, overpowering clouds, full of a mean spirit. The surprise they brought with them was a vast, boisterous wind that burst unannounced upon the world to tear the last of Indian summer into ribbons. The children ran indoors, Willie went down cellar to get wood for the fireplaces, and Cuffy hurried out to the clothesline and gathered up armfuls of bounding, devil-possessed clothes. High in the treehouse, Rush curled deeper into sleep, pulling his bathrobe close about him. "'How's Rush feeling, Cuffy?' asked Mona, setting the table. "'I guess he's all right,' Cuffy answered from the kitchen. "'He's still asleep.' She was right about that. Rush was still asleep, only not where she thought he was. The wind blew harder and harder. It wrenched the shutters from their catches and slapped them against the house. It blew the smoke down the chimney and tore branches from the trees. Up in the woods something fell to the earth with a loud crash. Rush sat up suddenly, chilled and stiff. At first he couldn't remember where he was. He was lost in a frightening turmoil of dark and wind. The very earth was rocking beneath him, and overhead all he could see was strange tossing forms and driving clouds. Absolutely terrified, he put out his hand and touched the rough, solid bark of the oak. The cold sweat of relief sprang out all over him. So it wasn't the end of the world after all. It was only his own tree-house, rocking in a gale. "'Boy, I better scram back to bed,' Rush said to himself. I wonder if I can climb up that spruce tree in the dark as easily as I came down it. The thought exhausted him. Maybe he could sneak up the back stairs without being caught. He turned up the collar of his bathrobe, flung one leg over the rail, and reached out with his slippered foot for the top rung of Willie's ladder. His foot waved aimlessly at first, then searchingly, and at last frantically. There was no ladder. "'Well, gee,' Rush said. He waved his foot around some more, but it met only empty space. The ladder had blown over. That must have been what woke him up. "'I could jump,' he remarked, without enthusiasm. He leaned over the railing and looked down. "'Jump? Twenty feet in the dark and into bushes? "'You'd be a jackass to try it.' "'Rush admonished himself. "'You'd break something or other, and first thing you know, "'Mona'd be practicing her first aid on you. "'Not much.' "'The next thing was to yell. "'He leaned far out and shouted in the direction of the house. "'Cuffy!' brayed Rush. "'Oh, Willie!' "'But the wind and the woods were roaring like the entire Atlantic Ocean.' Rush might have been a cricket chirping in a wilderness. He had yelled so hard and long that his already sore throat began to ache unbearably, and, discouraged, he sat down again on the platform, his back against the oak. There was nothing to do but wait. "'Maybe I'll die up here, starve to death,' he mumbled, feeling sorry for himself, but the absurdity of the statement was apparent even to him. Sooner or later somebody would come.' "'But by that time I'll be dead of exposure,' Rush thought. "'That wasn't so amusing. 
The wind howled about him, cold and violent, and only the fever in his veins kept him warm. "'I probably really will get pneumonia now,' he said, with a sort of triumphant gloom. Far away, between leaves and branches, he could see the small glittering lights of the house. They came and went, fitfully, a constellation of fireflies. Inside the house, the family would be eating supper now, warm, cosy, and protected, not caring that he was alone, cold, shut out in the storm. Why didn't they come and find him? But there was a good answer to that, and Rush knew what it was. The answer was a pillow, buried in a lifelike lump under the blankets of his bed. "'You don't get away with much in this world,' observed Rush profoundly. Oh, it was a wild night. The oak was racked with wind. It creaked and groaned in all its limbs. Cold leaves flew at Rush like bats. Overhead the torn, moon-filtered clouds raced hauntedly across the sky. What a howling, tossing, frenzied world it was! Too bad it's not Halloween, he thought. Anybody could believe in witches to-night. But Halloween had come and gone a week ago, mild as a lamb. He shook with chill, and burned with fever by turns. Against the darkness strange patterns flamed, and were gone. Fiery pinwheels, dancing stars, geometrical designs outlined in colored light, all the fantastic figures of a fevered imagination. Rush watched them with his teeth chattering. The Brahms' rhapsody galloped interminably through his mind in tune with the wild night. I don't think I'll ever be able to play it again, he thought, without feeling sick. At half-past eight the rain began. It was violent, like the wind, coming in great bursts and waves, cold and heavy as water pouring over a dam. He huddled against the tree, his head on his knees, his arms around his head. He had never been so wretched in his life. There was nothing left in the whole world but noise and water and confusion. This is how a soldier feels, Rush thought, far away in a foreign land, hiding in the dark and rain, waiting to fight. Somehow the thought made him feel braver. After all, he was lucky. There was no enemy searching for him, at least. In the warm living room of the house the fire hissed and crackled. A log caved in, sending up a shower of sparks. Mona sighed over her Latin, and Randy sighed over her English grammar. Isaac whimpered in his sleep. There was no sound from Oliver. He had gone to bed long ago. Cuffy put down her mending. "'Poor Rush,' she said. "'He's been sleeping all day. He ought to have some hot lemonade.' <clears throat> "'I'll make it, Cuffy,' Mona offered, glad to escape from her homework. "'You go and see how he is.' Cuffy tiptoed up the stairs and opened Rush's door. She stood there in the rectangle of light cast by the hall lamp, and listened. Gracious, how still the child was! There was no sound of deep, even breathing, no restless stirring against the pillow. She frowned, and went quickly over to the bed. An instant later she came out of the room, and hurried upstairs to the office, then to the cupola, and down again. "'Randy!' called Cuffy from the landing. "'Mona! Rush isn't here!' "'The rapscallion's gone off somewheres and left his pillow in the bed. "'One of you go down cellar and see if he's there. "'One of you go out and get Willie. Hurry!' "'I'll go,' cried Randy, and rushed for the door. 
"'Put on your raincoat,' ordered Cuffy, even in the midst of her distraction. "'And take your shoes off the minute you get back. It's pouring. Now where in time did I put the flashlight?' But Randy didn't wait. Grabbing her slicker, she rushed out. The wind almost took her off her feet. The cold rain was blown against her. She ran to the stable, leaping over fallen branches and splashing through puddles. The stable door was closed, and she almost broke her back getting it open. Recklessly she made her way to the narrow stairs, and bumped her shin hard against the first step, but hardly even felt it she was so frightened. A crack of light was shining under Willie's door, and his radio was going full blast, dance music loud enough to burst an eardrum. "'Willie! Willie!' shouted Randy, banging her fists against the door. "'What's the matter?' cried Willie, throwing it open. "'House on fire? Someone sick? What's the matter?' "'It's Rush!' gasped Randy. "'We can't find him!' Willie waited for nothing. Still wearing his old fleece-lined slippers, and holding a copy of Popular Mechanics in one hand, he raced down the stairs beside Randy. Behind them, dance music still poured lavishly out of the radio. "'He's not in the house nowheres?' "'We couldn't find him. We don't know where he is.' Randy was almost in tears. "'He's got a temperature, too.' "'I bet I know,' cried Willie, with a flash of inspiration. "'You go on back to the house now. Go on, do like I say. Go get your feet dry. I've got my pocket flashlight with me.' A few minutes later, Rush thought he heard someone calling his name. He paid no attention. "'Probably just fever again,' he thought to himself. "'Or maybe it's the angel Gabriel.' But then he heard the sound of something scraping against the tree, and saw a light shining vertically through the rain. He tottered to his feet and looked over the railing, right into the ascending face of Willie Sloper. "'You look even better than the angel Gabriel to me,' croaked Rush thankfully, and Willie reached out a wiry arm, helped him over the railing, half carried him down the ladder, and really did carry him all the way through the woods to the house. Willie was a swell guy. He never fussed around with whys and hows. He just carried Rush home, and kept saying, "'It's all right now. You're okay now. We'll have you back in your bed in a jiffy.' And in a jiffy Rush was back in bed, wearing dry pajamas, and feeling as if he had died and gone to a warm, dry heaven." The storm had put the lights out again, of course, but there was a kerosene lamp purring on the table beside him. Nobody scolded him, not even Cuffy. They seemed to take it for granted that he had been punished enough, as indeed he had. "'Are you frozen any place?' asked Mona eagerly. "'I know exactly what to do for frostbite.' "'Sorry to disappoint you,' Rush replied through the pleasant ringing in his ears, "'but I'm not frozen any place. I feel swell.' Mona draped a shawl across his shoulders, Randy brought him a hot water bottle, and Willie heaped wood on the fire. Cuffy came up with a tray full of hot things to eat—hot soup, hot ovaltine, hot milk toast. "'I feel like a very rich old lady,' Rush remarked appreciatively. "'My only regret is that in real life I'll never get to be a grandmother.' "'Or rich, either, probably,' said Mona witheringly. "'Go on now,' Cuffy said. "'All of you, out. "'He has to have his temperature taken before he eats these hot things, "'and he has to have an aspirin afterwards.' 
Rush was sick in bed for over a week with bronchitis, and except for the first two days enjoyed every minute of it. Father brought him some new books, Oliver loaned him his comics, and Willie the back issues of Popular Mechanics. Cuffy was always making delicious, streamlined things that went down his throat without bumping it. Nobody was allowed to come into the room to see him except grown-ups, who were tough old things, less liable to catch his germs. But Cuffy spent hours mending in the rocker beside the window. She was always good company, and so was Father, who spent each evening with him, and Willie Sloper, who came for frequent conversational visits. When he was alone, Rush read and read and read. When he got tired of reading, he played the gramophone or his radio. When he got tired of that, he worked on his model airplanes, and when he got tired of that, he added the finishing touches to a story he was writing called The Ghost in the Dumbwaiter. And when he got tired of that, he simply lay still and watched the swaying spruce branches against the gray sky and listened to the music inside his head. Sometimes he just slept. Yes, it was a fine illness, but after eight days of it he was glad to be up again, tottering weak and pale about the house. Also he retained a distinctive bass cough, more animal than human, that hung on for weeks and startled everyone who heard it. It kept him provided with free cough drops, oranges, lozenges, and whole jars of honey. He was quite sorry when he got over it. And that's the end of Chapter 5 of The Four-Story Mistake by Elizabeth N. Wright. I'll see you next time. Bye.